The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always take a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure that we are prepared for worship, prepared to study God's Word, that we have, uh, that we're filled with the Spirit and ready to uh, submit to His teaching ministry. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and recovery is based simply on the procedure outlined in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess or admit, acknowledge our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, since that is the subject of this morning's message, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time explaining that right now. We'll come back and answer some questions on that in just a minute. So we just begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this privilege and pleasure to worship you this morning through your word, that we can can come and, and have our souls refreshed by the uh, living water of your word, that it is under the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit that we're able to understand your word, and that through his filling ministry, he uh, stores your word in our soul, that we might be able to remember it and apply it in time when we need to. Father, we thank you that this is all based on grace. It's not based on who we are, what we've done, or any other human factor. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, that you might give us clear insight into your word, that we might continue to advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This, uh, as I say, the first hour, I went over to uh, New York, Thursday and Friday night and spoke at Beulah Baptist Church there, which is a rather large um, black Baptist church. And they had an evangelist in there about a month ago and had uh, uh, 80 people in one night trust the Lord. They had 120 during that week of evangelistic meetings. They had 120 people saved. So there were a number of people who were at the conference 
Thursday and Friday night who weren't real sure of what salvation is, much less eternal security. And a number of people in the congregation were concerned about, uh, well, what about sin and what do you do with sin after you're saved? What's the problem and what's the solution? So the pastor had wanted me to come over and specifically address the subject of spirituality. We called, uh, called the conference, Now I'm Saved, Now What? So, uh, and that unfortunately is a problem in most churches because we're taught a lot about salvation, but we're not taught a lot about the spiritual life. We're not taught a lot about the, the procedures, the mechanics of understanding spirituality and the great spirituality is by grace. And just as salvation is by grace, and we're reminded of the fact that in, first, in Galatians 3.3, 3, Paul said, have you begun by the Spirit or are you now trying to be matured by means of the flesh or the sin nature? And that the spiritual life is not simple morality. It's not contradictory to morality, but even unbelievers can be moral. And so that whatever is part of the spiritual life is beyond what, simple, what unbelievers can do and that it is a life that is uniquely energized and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. So we had a, a lot of fun, and they were able to get a lot of their questions answered, and the Lord really used that time, and it was good, uh, good to go over there and do that. And then on Saturday morning, I taught a group of Sunday school teachers, and they fed me breakfast. And for <clears throat> some of you, you will appreciate this, that they, they fed me grits for breakfast. Now, some of you may think grits, that sandy stuff that you get between your teeth sometime, but if you're from the South, then uh, you know I can't even find grits in the grocery store up here. Now, I'm not like some folks who put sugar and uh, syrup on their grits. I like, like it with garlic and cheese, but they didn't have that either, but it was good. So I, I en- enjoyed that. And uh, unfortunately, while I was there, my pulpit glasses broke. So I either have my reading glasses here, so you're either fuzzy or my notes are fuzzy. So I guess you're going to be fuzzy this morning when I have, uh, have my glasses on. That's the problem when you get of a certain age. You look in the mirror and you think everything looks great. And just as, just as I got up here second hour, I reached up and realized I forgot to shave this morning. <laughs> when I looked at, at, in the mirror, everything looked great. That's the problem with having white stubble if you can't see it unless you have your glasses on. So I've gotten to where I have a, a bathroom pair of glasses with high magnification that I'm supposed to put on and look in the mirror before I leave. You know, that's a great illustration of James 1. You don't want to be like the man when you come and hear the Word. You don't want to be like the person who looks in a mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what he sees. Well, I was like the man who looked in the mirror and didn't see anything. <laughs> so... Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. Last time we began our study of this important section in the, in John, these verses from verse 8 down through 2 2, which address the situation or the question of what does a believer do with post-salvation sins? We know that Jesus Christ went to the cross. There he paid the penalty for all of our sins. It's so important to understand. He paid the penalty for every single sin we'll ever commit in human history, for past sins, for present sins, for future sins. Because God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. 
God knows every single sin that we will ever commit in life. There's no sin that escapes Him. There's no, therefore, because He has always known of every sin that we will commit in our life, we can never commit some sin that surprises Him, that shocks Him, that somehow offends His righteousness to the degree that, that we lose our salvation. Because God in His omniscience knew every sin that we would ever commit, when Christ paid the penalty for their, those sins, we can be assured that every single sin that we will ever commit was paid for by Christ on the cross. He redeemed us. The technical term in Scripture is redemption. He paid the purchase price. It was a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. So that the issue for the believer is no longer sin. That is such a freeing concept for people. It's not sin. It is Christ. That's why in John 3.18, which I quoted earlier, it states, He who believeth not is condemned already. He who believes on him is not condemned but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has n- what? Not believed. Not because he sinned, because he's not believed. The issue is faith in Christ. Christ paid the penalty, and if we don't accept Christ as our Savior, then we do not have eternal life. As we have studied, there are two things necessary for salvation. One is that our sins are paid for. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. That's not physical death, that's spiritual death. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that afternoon, God the Father cloaked Golgotha in darkness so that no one could see the enormous pain and misery and suffering that Jesus was going through as he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. During those three hours, he was separated judicially from God the Father as he paid the penalty for our sins. When it was over with, when he was finished, John says, when it was finished, he then said, I thirst. When it was finished, that tells us that when he was still alive, salvation was paid for. But physical death is the consequence of spiritual death, and so Jesus Christ also had to deal with the problem of the consequences of sin And so he died physically. He said, it is finished to telestai, which means it is complete, it's paid in full. And then he died physically. That paid the penalty for our sins. That is the basis for all of our forgiveness of sins is that they have been paid for on the cross. And at the moment of salvation, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, our sins were paid for. And we are in fellowship with God. But we still have a sin nature. That's the point that John is making, that there were those in the area of Asia Minor and there were those at the church at Ephesus who were beginning to claim that, that they really didn't sin or that, that the sin nature somehow was removed at salvation. These are ideas that come up now and again over the history of the church. and uh, Some people call it perfectionism today, that somehow Christians can... can uh, uh, rise above their sin nature, that the sin nature is eradicated at salvation. But that is not what John says in verse 8. He says there, expressing this in a uh, first-class condition, supposition, or hypothetical statement, if we say, that is, sometimes we may say this, we may not say this, that's the force of a third-class condition in the Greek, We have studied that there are four ways of expressing if clauses in the Greek. In English, we only have one way, and somehow when we 
transfer something over from, from Greek to English, we lose the thrust of what it says in the original. There are four different ways of expressing an if clause in the Greek. First class condition, if and it's true, assuming it to be true. Second class, if and we assume it to be false. Third class, if maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Third class, if I wish it were true, but it's not. So here we have a true condition. If we say, in other words, we, as we have seen, refers to believers. Specifically in the context, it's referring to John, the author, the Apostle John. It also includes at some level the apostles with whom he is associated, but primarily it's an edit, what's called an editorial or authorial we, which means me. So he is recognizing that even he as a believer, even he as an apostle, even he can possibly get into self-deception and claim to be sinless. He says, if we say that we have no sin... And this is the use of a verb, the present active indicative of echo, meaning to have or to hold. It means to have no sin whatsoever. Sin there is in the singular. And that's important here because if we look at the contrasting verse, this is the verse describing the believer in self-deception and denying the truth of God's Word versus the believer who is oriented to doctrine and oriented to truth in verse 9 where it says, if we confess our sins. In verse 9, it's a plural. So, what's the difference between the singular sin of verse 8 and the plural sins of verse 9? Well, the significance of this is that he is, this person is saying, in arrogance, that there's no sin at all in the life. No single sin, not even a, a sin nature anymore. I've achieved perfection. So if we claim that we have no, no, not even one single sin or even a sin nature, John says we are deceiving ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves. Now self-deception is one of what I call arrogant skills, one of four arrogant skills. And these are the way in which we implement arrogance in our lives. It begins with self-absorption. That's what arrogance is. It's a focus on self. And we live in a society today that is loaded with self-absorption. In fact, it, it feeds self-absorption. And I think in some areas we've elevated self-absorption to an entirely new level. So it starts with self-absorption. And once we begin to focus on ourselves and our, our emotions and our feelings and our needs and our wants, then before long we slip into the second arrogant skill, and that's self-indulgence. Once we begin to focus on ourselves, then we, we want to indulge ourselves. We want to indulge our, our wants and our needs, however we define them, and we begin to do whatever it is we want to do to feel better. Because feeling and emotion in our society has become a criterion for what is right. It's not truth anymore. It's how it makes me feel. And so we move from self-absorption to self-indulgence, and then when we get into self-indulgence, it may be sin, but nevertheless, it makes me feel good, so now we have to start justifying our behavior. So the third stage in, in our arrogant skills is self-justification. We start rationalizing our behavior. Well, I have a sin nature. How can you expect me not to do that? That's the trend of my sin nature. Uh, that's the way I was raised. I, 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 that's just the way I am. I, I can't overcome that, so I'm just going to uh, uh, relax and enjoy it. 
and um, or we may even get to the point where we say it's not really sin. See, that's what happens in a lot of the theological systems that talk about perfectionism, is they re- reduce perfection or sin to just o- certain overt sins, so that it's real easy to say you're sinless if sin is what the other guy succumbs to. You know, if sin is just the fearsome five or the nasty nine or the terrible two or whatever it is, then and you don't do those things, that doesn't happen to be the trend of your sin nature, then it's real easy to say, well, I don't sin. But when we understand what the Bible teaches about sin, that we sin in three ways. There's, first of all, mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins include the entire uh, panoply of sins of thought, sins of attitude, envy, jealousy, lust, uh, anger, hatred, bitterness. All of these are mental attitude sins, not to mention arrogance itself, which is the underlying sin. Arrogance is the, the key element of Satan's sin when he fell. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to exalt himself. He fell into self-absorption and gave into it. So we want to justify our sin often, and the best way to do that, well, it's not really a sin. It's not really a sin. Or, or the other way, which, which John's going to get into a little later on, is that, uh, well, Jesus paid for it, so since it's already paid for, uh, it doesn't really matter anymore. And that was an element in the, the pre-Gnostic thinking of these that were influencing his readers at that time, at the end of the first century. They were saying that, well, physically I'm a sinner, but in the spiritual realm I'm not, because Christ has paid for my sins. So, so I, 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 they, they made a distinction. They divorced the spirit from the physical and, of course, the physical body would still sin because, after all, matter is evil. And they would say, but the spiritual man isn't sinning. It's perfect. So they would just rationalize and justify their sin that way. So we move from self-absorption to self-indulgence and then into self-justification. And at that stage, we become self-deceived. We uh, become completely divorced from reality. And the Bible also refers to this as hardness of heart. Hardness of heart, the blackout of the soul, scar tissue on the soul. Where we become hardened to, to truth and we no longer are willing to look at ourselves in the honesty of the light of God's revelation. And as we sin, whenever we sin, we know from what we read and studied in verse 7, we're no longer walking in the light, but we are indeed walking in darkness. So John describes this self-deceived believer as deceiving himself because he is now uh, dominated by sin in his thinking. If we say that we have no sin, he says we are in self-deception. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we are no longer applying truth or thinking consistently with truth. Now, what is truth? Well, Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So the Word of God then becomes the absolute standard for what truth is. It is truth with a capital T. It is not, as we have studied in the first hour, the truth that is derived from empiricism or rationalism, the truth that man discovers through his own experience, which is truth with a small t and might be changed or reshaped next week, next month, or next year as new information is discovered. This is talking about Bible doctrine. This is talking about the truth of God's Word. This is talking about the eternal absolutes that are encapsulated and revealed to us in the 66 books of the Bible. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and doctrine is not in us. We are 
hostile, therefore, to the Word of God. But in contrast to this attitude of arrogance, there is the attitude of the believer. There is that which should characterize the, which does characterize the advancing and maturing believer, and that is expressed in the supposition of verse 9. Now, last time we went through this in detail in terms of exegesis, and I need to review it, and then I'm going to answer some questions that are typically raised about confession of sin. First of all, again, we have a third-class condition if we confess. Maybe you will, maybe you will not. That's up to you. The the third-class condition here emphasizes our volition. We have to decide whether or not we're going to confess our sins and get back in fellowship with God, or we're going to make a decision to stay in carnality. Now, what is carnality? Well, I want you to hold your place here and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Here Paul is writing to about as messed up and confused a crowd of believers as ever existed. It's the town of Corinth. Corinth was the good time city of the ancient world. There wasn't a sin that wasn't... uh, uh, popular. There wasn't a religious system that wasn't promoted in that town. And these folks were saved out of that background, and unfortunately they brought a lot of those religious ideas and moral values with them when they came into the church. We all do that. That's what happens in salvation. But they weren't listening and applying the Word, and as a result, Paul had to chastise them in this letter. So he starts off in verse 1, he says, And I, brethren. Now, brethren tells us right away that he's addressing them as believers. So we get this idea that if you're a, real, if you're a genuine believer in Christ, then there are certain sins you won't commit, certain sins you can't commit. You can't even deny Jesus. That's false. You can't. You still have a sin nature. The sin nature you and I possess after salvation is just as powerful just as strong, just as insidious, and just as evil as it was before we were saved. See, at salvation we're saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. But it's only through the process of spiritual growth, advancing in maturity by learning the Word of God under the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God, walking in dependence on the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God gradually frees us from the power of sin. It's broken positionally at salvation. We're free from the penalty of sin, and according to Romans chapter 6, because of our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, that power is broken. We're no longer slaves. What we do is, when we choose to sin, we put ourselves willfully back into that slavery to the sin nature. And that's what has happened here with these believers. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Now, what does he mean here? This is a, the concept of spirituality is one of the most distorted concepts uh, today. Spirituality, as we have studied in our study of contemporary uh, Christianity, our contemporary culture, is that spirituality is often understood as self-absorption, self-fulfillment, uh, it's identified with emotional well-being. It's identified with 
uh, Eastern mystical ideas. Spirituality, in fact, is, as uh, secular observers have noted, has come to mean just about anything to anybody. Whatever you want it to mean, that's what it means to you. But the Bible doesn't use spirituality in that sort of abstract, nebulous way. It's, it's very precise. And it is the word here, pneumaticoys. Looks like this in the Greek. P-N-E-U-M-A. That's the word for breath or spirit, wind. And it can refer to a... The, it has several meanings. It can refer to lowercase spirit, uppercase spirit. It can also refer to thinking. And in this passage from about 1 Corinthians 2.12 down, it has all of these meanings. And this final ending, T-I-K-O-I-S, makes, renders it as an adjective describing a certain kind of person. Now, what does he mean by a spiritual person? Because he's going to contrast them with men of flesh. Men of flesh. He says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual, but as to men of flesh. And the word there is sarkinos. Sarkinos. S-A-R-K-I-N-O-S. From the Greek sarx, which means flesh, and is a technical term used by the Apostle Paul to refer to our sin nature. Now, in the context, if we look back at what Paul has said at the end of chapter 2, let's go back to verse 9. Verse 9, we, if we don't understand a couple of things that are said as far back as verse 9, then when we get down to the, verse, the last two verses, we'll totally miss what, what Paul's saying. He says, but just as it is written, here he quotes from Isaiah 64, 4, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Now, what does he mean by things? What does he mean by things? What he means by things is what God has revealed to us, the principles, the precepts of the Word of God says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. Okay, two things here. First of all, he's saying that doctrine is different from what you discover from empiricism. Eye and ear, that's related to empiricism, learning from experience. He says, and which have not entered into the heart of man. Heart, cardia, often means the thinking of man, the center of thought, which is rationalism. So right here he says, revelation is distinct and is, he really is going to imply that it is superior to either empiricism or rationalism. And he says, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which has not entered, entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Now, the things, this, this word things is a neuter plural in the Greek. Now, I don't want to confuse you with too much grammar but you have to keep your eye on the ball whenever you study the Scriptures. And if you take your eye off the ball, you're going to get down to verse uh, 15 and you're going to totally misunderstand the verse. The things, this neuter plural, always keeps referring to the same thing. And that is what God has revealed, the principles, precepts, procedures of the Word of God, Bible doctrine. So, he's talking about how God has revealed certain things to us. And it's done through the Spirit, capital S in verse 10, the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of revelation and inspiration. Verse 11, 
For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man? Oh, and here we use the word pneuma, not in a technical sense, but just in a general sense of the immaterial part of man, because he's using it in parallel with the term spirit of God. Who among man knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man? which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And once again, it's Holy Spirit. You've got to keep your eye on the ball here or you're going to... And you need to make some notes in your Bible because it's real important here to understand these terms or you misconstrue the passage. Now, in verse 12, Paul says, Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world. Now, when he's talking about the Spirit of God, he's talking about a person, the Holy Spirit. But when he gets down here and he talks about the spirit of the world, he's not. there is no individual spirit called the spirit of the world. Here he uses the word pneuma to refer to the attitude or thinking of the world. That's why I say you have to be careful because words have everywhere, even in English we have many words that can have five or six different shades of meaning. And it's typical, even in, in some passages in the Bible, for a word to be used and for different shades of meaning to be emphasized even within a few verses of each other. And that's what we have here. We have received not the thinking or attitude of the world, but we have received the Spirit who is from God, and that's a capital S. Now, I don't want to take all morning to exegete this verse, but this should not be a capital S. This should not be a capital S. It's a technical phrase in the Greek, the Spirit who is from God, and it uses the, the, the preposition ek plus the genitive of God, and that's different from the phrase you find down in verse 14 where it talks about the things of the Spirit of God, and Spirit from God there is just a straight genitive of source, a straight genitive. Now, that's important because what Paul's doing is by using a preposition uh, earlier, and not using it later, he's talking about, he's showing that he's talking about different things. He uses a completely different structure in these two passages, so they're not talking about the same thing. He wants us to understand when he's talking about the Holy Spirit and when he's not. And this was a translator's interpretive decision in verse 12 to capitalize that S. Sometimes translators, every time they see Spirit, they just want to sanctify it and capitalize that S. But what he is saying here, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Now, what spirit is that? That's lowercase s, human spirit. That's what we receive at regeneration. That's what he's talking about. Is And he's going to make it clear when he gets to verse 14 that the unsaved person is a natural man, which is a lousy translation of the Greek word sukikos, suke, meaning soul. The soulish man and that the soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God that the Holy Spirit reveals because they are lowercase s, spiritually appraised. And the point is the unbeliever can't understand the things of God, doctrines revealed in the Scripture, because they don't possess a human spirit. When God originally created man, He created Adam with three parts, human body, human soul, and human spirit, physical body, had a human soul and human spirit, and the human soul and spirit worked together. The soul was the seat of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, uh, volition, and conscience. And with the human spirit, energized those elements of the soul so that man could understand the things of God, understand his relationship with God. God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and the woman every single day before the fall. 
and they could understand him and have a relationship with him because the human spirit is what gave them that capacity. But when they ate of the fruit, they died. They didn't die physically, they died spiritually. That means something. Something died. It was that aspect of their immaterial nature called the human spirit. And so that's what Paul refers to here, is that we have received, at the point of salvation, the the human spirit who is from God. God is the one who gave that to us, created it, and imparted it to us at the instant of salvation so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Just a little note. If that spirit is capital S, then that would imply that you can't know doctrine without having the Holy Spirit. Now think about it a minute. Did anybody in the Old Testament have the Holy Spirit? No. No one in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit. They were Only a few were endowed or endued by the Holy Spirit for particular purposes of leadership in the nation. We studied that, where the artisans who built the temple received the Holy Spirit to help them in that task. Some of the judges were clothed, the Scripture says, with the Holy Spirit who who used them, gave them military wisdom to conquer the enemies of Israel. David, Saul, some of the other kings were endued with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of leadership in their function and role as the king of Israel. But it didn't have to do with their spiritual life and their spiritual growth and illumination and teaching. Uh, Jesus indicated that to the disciples, that I will send the Spirit to you who will teach you and remind you of all things. So what we're talking about here can't be the Holy Spirit because that would imply that no one previous to the church age could have ever understood the Word. So it's got to be something different, something universal in time and throughout both Old and New Testament. Then in verse 13 he says, which things, now the things, watch that phrase, which things we also speak. What things? The things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard back in verse 9. Taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, that is Sukikos, an unsaved man, and by the way, in Jude chapter 19, he says, hold your place here, because you need to, we need to have a little retranslation in a few places. I cannot believe what some translators do with, with the, uh, with the Greek. It's just astounding. Look at Jude chapter, or Jude verse 19. Jude verse 19. Talking about the false teachers who are disturbing and causing divisions in the congregation in verse 18. Jude says, these are the ones who cause divisions. And then he's going to characterize them. He says they're worldly minded. Now those of you who have been around here a while know by now that the word worldly is the Greek word cosmos. Now, you would think that this would be an adverbial form of cosmos in the Greek. Wrong. It's sukikos. Sukikos, suke meaning soul. As an adjective, it means soulish. Where did they get worldly-minded out of soulish? A Christian can be worldly-minded, but a believer can't be soulish. Soulish is an unbeliever who doesn't possess a uh, human spirit. And it's even further defined not clear in the English. In your English Bible, if you're using New American Standard, it says devoid of the Spirit, and they sanctified it once again and capitalized it. In the Greek, it's me echon uh, pneumatone, not having spirit. 
Now, the Greek doesn't tell you whether that ought to be capitalized or not. You have to derive that from context. You have to use a little theology. Now, not having spirit, worldly-minded, not having the Holy Spirit, that's just confusing. Pneumaticos, I mean, sukikos, when you look at it back in 1 Corinthians 14, it's clear that the sukikos person is a person who doesn't possess a human spirit. And that's exactly what Jude is saying, is these people are unbelievers, they're sukikos, they haven't been regenerated. And he defines the term in an appositional phrase, the sukikos means not having spirit. Now, that we've had that for background, he says, they are foolishness to him, a uh, natural man, back in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually investigated. The word appraised, it's a little fuzzy. The word there, anacrino, means to investigate something, to analyze, to, be, to study something. And that indicates that it, we have to have a human spirit before we can study and investigate and understand the Word of God. That's why in verse 15 it says, He who is spiritual. There's our phrase. That's the phrase he uses in 3.1. That's why I've gone back to chapter 2, is to understand this phrase. He who is spiritual investigates all things. Now, for those of you who've been around a while, you know that in the King James Version it says, He that is spiritual. Lewis Berry Chaper, the founder of Dallas Seminary, took that phrase as the title for his book, He That Is Spiritual which teaches tremendous principles on how to live the spiritual life. And this is exactly what his point was. He says, He who is spiritual, that is the person who now possesses the human spirit, is able to investigate all things. Now, what are the all things? See, if you read that without knowing any Greek, you would think that the all things refers to things in life. Whatever events are in life, because I'm now saved, I'm able to appraise or understand or discern all things out there. But look at what the text says. Follow. Remember at the beginning I said follow the bouncing ball. You've got to go back to verse, where was that, verse 9. Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard. That's doctrine. That's what the things refers to. Then you see it again in um, verse 12. We have received... Uh, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. That is doctrine. So, verse 15 is talking about that the person who possesses a human spirit now is able to investigate the Word of God. He's now able to understand the Word of God, but he himself, that is the believer, is appraised by no man. Unbelievers can't understand us. We're set apart. We're distinct. We think differently. We're we're, we're different now. We possess a human spirit and they don't. There's a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Ah, but they're not living like there's a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The crowd in Corinth is living just like unbelievers are. And that's why in verse 1 Paul says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, that is, those who are regenerate and born again. I have to speak to you as carnal. And now he introduces a new word. So we have three types of people listed in this passage. Those who are spiritual, that is, those who are saved and possess a human spirit. Those who are soulish, those who are unregenerate, just have a soul. And now, as a subcategory of those who are spiritual, we have those who are fleshly, or the old King James used the word carnal. 
from the Latin carne. Like I like to eat chili con carne. That's chili with meat. I like it hot and spicy. Spiritual. Or as a believer, then you can either be spiritual or carnal. If you're if so, spiritual has to do first with possessing a human spirit, being saved. The second meaning of spiritual is walking by means of the spirit, uh, as discussed in Galatians five. 16 and following. So Paul says to the believers here, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, carnal men, as to babes in Christ. Now see, this has confused a lot of people because they think that babes in Christ is appositional to carnal, and therefore carnality means somebody who's just an ignorant baby believer. But there are several different words in Greek for baby. One is brephos. And that's a good word. It's just talking about an infant, a baby, a newborn baby. But the word that's used here is napios. And if you don't know Greek real well and you haven't done your homework, you might think, because it could just mean a typical baby. But it was also a word that was commonly used as an insult. Much as we would talk about somebody, quit acting like a baby. It's a very nasty, derogative, pejorative term here. Paul's being very sarcastic. And he's saying, I couldn't address you as believers. I've got to address you as a... You're just acting like a baby. You're acting carnal. You're acting on the basis of your sin nature like you don't know a thing. And they're out of fellowship. And so as a result of that, he says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you weren't able to receive it. Even now you're not able. They can't take in milk. They can't even take in milk. Why? Because when you're out of fellowship... When you're operating on the sin nature, you're out of fellowship with the sin, with the uh, Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who teaches us. It's the Holy Spirit who is the one who stores doctrine in our soul. It's the Holy Spirit is the one who brings it back to our memory in recall so that when we need to apply it, He reminds us of it and helps us see how to apply it. The whole spiritual life is on the basis of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And Galatians 5.16 says if we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, it will be impossible for us to fulfill the works of the flesh, the sin nature. And there as we've studied, it uses a a very precise construction in the Greek, uh, double negative plus a subjunctive verb, meaning it's impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So, what happens then when we sin? What's the solution? Well, the solution is what we find back in our passage in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins. See, what gets us carnal is living on the sin nature. Mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, overt sins. But Paul's, I mean, John says, if we confess, and the Greek word is homologeo, As I said last time, you'll always find some rookie in the original languages who wants to define that as saying the same thing as. Because if you break it down etymologically, homo means same, logos means saying. So they'll say, therefore, it means saying the same thing. But that's called an etymological fallacy. Words, the meaning of words is not derived from their etymology. Etymology can help. Etymology is the study of the history of words and their development and over time. But if you look at, do a study of the word homologeo as it's used in Scripture, 
It's used in parallelism, synonymous parallelism in many places with words that mean simply to admit or to acknowledge. And that's what confession is. When you go into court, you stand before a judge, you, you confess your guilt, you admit or acknowledge your guilt. You may feel bad, you may not feel bad. There may be remorse, there may not be remorse. You don't, it doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. The passage doesn't say, if we feel sorry for our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How we feel about it isn't relevant. When you're standing in a courtroom, how you feel about your crime isn't relevant to your guilt. It might be relevant to your punishment, but it's not relevant to your guilt. Now, I'm not saying that you should never feel sorry for sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there, the emotion, the remorse, the regret that we feel sometimes isn't necessary for forgiveness because we may commit some sin and it may shock us. We may be afraid of the consequences. We may feel incredibly remorseful and we, we try to impress God with our sincerity and that we'll never do it again, but God in His omniscience knows that we're going to do it 8,796 more times, so quit pl- trying to blow smoke at me. It simply says if we admit our sins. It doesn't say if we ask forgiveness for our sins, He'll forgive us. It doesn't say that. It says if you confess, if you admit or acknowledge your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want you to notice that this word sins is in the plural and relates to this word sins. So that if we confess our sins, when it states He is faithful and righteous, His character is immutable, He always does the same thing every time, even when we're confessing the same thing for the 99th time in the last 30 minutes, God is not going to say, come on, get over it. When you finally get, get it right, I'll forgive you. He always does the same thing every time. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That's what we just named. That's what we just admitted. But he goes beyond that. He cleanses us. And this is the Greek word, very important word in our study of confession. Katharizo, it means to purify. It goes back into the Old Testament where the priests had to wash their hands, wash their feet, before they could go into the presence of God. They, and the word that was used there was katharizo, it's cleansing. They, and it pictured the fact that they, had to, they were being cleansed from their sins, what they did and where they went, uh, before they went into the presence of God. Recognizing the principle from Psalm 66 that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sin abrogates our walk, our relationship with God. He doesn't hear our prayers if we're out of fellowship. We have to do something to be restored to fellowship. We have to confess, admit, acknowledge our sins. He forgives us of the sins we confess. We don't remember them all. If it's been a year, we're certainly not going to remember them all. Uh, some things we, we, some sins we commit, we're not even sure they're sins. So God goes a step further in grace and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, before we get any further in this verse, I want to stop and address several questions that typically come up when we talk about confession. First of all, one question that is asked 
in the church age. I mean, confession, I can understand in the Old Testament, it was part of the ritual system of the priesthood and tabernacle service. But this is the only place that really uses the word confess in the New Testament. So how can you say that confession is such a vital part of the believer's life? Well, let's look at what the Scripture, what the scripture says. First of all, a principle. And that is that confession has always been a vital part of the believer's life in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's always been a part of the believer's life, Old and New Testament. Second principle. Now, this is logical. I just want you to think through the logic of the statement. that, And I've heard this before. That, it, Robbie, if you say you have to confess, that's legalism. Now, think about this. Legalism was never the basis for either salvation or the spiritual life in the Old Testament. The observance of sacrifices and ritual in the Old Testament was grace. God's basis for salvation in the Old Testament was based on the grace promise that He would provide a Savior who would pay the penalty for their sins in the future. Following the procedures of the sacrifices, the sacrifice for salvation on the Day of Atonement, the trespass, sin, and guilt offerings that were uh, part of the spiritual life of the believer in the Old Testament were procedures they followed that pictured the future provision of God's grace solution at the cross. They weren't saved because of the sacrifice. They were saved because of their faith in the provision of a Savior. They weren't forgiven because of the sacrifice. They were forgiven because Christ would pay the penalty. The sacrifice was an instantiation of that because it had not happened yet. So they had to sacrifice because that was a temporary provision because the permanent solution was still future. It has always been true that there's one way of salvation, Old and New Testament, and that is grace, faith through grace. Saved by grace. Grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Not because of faith, but through faith. Faith is the means of our salvation. Now, sanctification is also by grace. It's never been by legalism. They weren't sanctified by obeying the law. Paul says in Romans 3.21 that the purpose of the law was to show that they were sinners. It wasn't to sanctify them. And furthermore, the law was the code of conduct, the legal code for the entire nation, which included believers and unbelievers alike. So if you're going to say that confession in the church age is legalistic, to be logical, you have to say it's legalistic in the Old Testament. And if you're going to say it's legalistic in the Old Testament, then that would mean that salvation and sanctification in the Old Testament was based on legalism and works and not grace. I know that's rigorous logic. That's a little hard sometimes early in the morning on a Sunday to handle. But if, you, if somebody makes a claim that confession, and, and there are people who are doing that. I mean, I wouldn't be making a point out of this if I hadn't heard it. And if there weren't people who are going around saying, you don't need to confess your sins as a believer because that's just works and legalism, and it's not mentioned but one time in the New Testament, so it doesn't matter. A second point there, and that is, as Dr. Ryrie used to say at Dallas Seminary, God only needs to say it once. <laughs> you know, it doesn't gain validity and infallibility because God repeats it twice. But God has repeated this principle throughout the Old and New Testament, and I want to review some of these. 
First of all, in Exodus chapter 12, 15, we're told about the uh, feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Leaven represented sin. In order to qualify the house for the worship of God at Passover and during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they had to remove all the leaven. They'd have a great ceremony. The children go around all over the house in a Jewish household looking for all the leaven. Open up all the drawers, all the cabinets. The father will plant leaven in about five or six different places in the household and they'll sweep it up with a little feather and then they'll take it all out and there'll be bonfires out on the street and they burn it. There's a symbol that sin's been removed from the house. That is a picture representation of confession. In order to prepare the house for the worship of God, the leaven is removed in order to qualify, purify, cleanse the house. Another example of confession in the Old Testament, another picture is in Exodus 30.20, talking about the priest, that when they enter the meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. Or when they uh, approach the altar to minister by, the offering, by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. Now what's interesting is in the study of the priesthood, when the high priest was, was anointed and inaugurated into office, he was washed from head to toe. And then each time he entered into the temple, he had to wash his, just his feet and his hands. Now when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, they used the Greek word, this is going to be important when we get to John 13, they used the Greek word luo to indicate entire washing, and the Greek word nipto to indicate just the washing of hands and feet. And when, so when Jesus comes along and tells Peter, as we'll see in a minute, that you, you have been washed, he says you've been luoed already, but now you need to nipto your hands. And, your hands. If you don't let me nipto your feet, wash your feet, then you'll have no part in my ministry. That's the point that Jesus is making to, to Peter. Leviticus 16.20 emphasizes this. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and tent of meeting of the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And that's a picture of the fact that when we confess our sins, then God removes them for us from us as far as the east is from the west. God says, and I will remove your sins from you, and your, I mean, I will re- wash your transgressions from you, and I will re- remember your sins no more. So that's that picture. One goat is taken off into the wilderness and released, never to come back. God forgets our sins. We don't, and we bring them back up, and we say, oh, I'm so sorry. And God says, well, you just, if, you, if we remember them in the sense of going on a guilt trip, God's saying, you're not believing the fact that I forgave you. That's another sin. So once we need to realize God has forgiven us so that we can move forward. 1 Samuel 15:24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Saul confessed. David confessed to Nathan after the sin with Bathsheba. I have sinned against the Lord. Notice he sinned against the Lord. He killed Uriah. 
he, he forced Bathsheba to have sex with him, but the sin is against God. See, our sin may affect other people, and we may have to go to them and ask forgiveness, and we may have to go to them and apologize and deal with problems that ensue from that, but that doesn't have to do with the spiritual life, because the spiritual life has to do with our relationship with God. And just because you have a right relationship with people doesn't mean you have a right relationship with God. We, we sin against God. Sin is against His standard, so we have to admit our sins to Him. Again, David had to confess his sins after he uh, took a census of the people in 2 Samuel 24.10. Now, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Second Chronicles 29.5 is another example of confession. This is an example of Hezekiah's prayer of confession in, uh, in the Old Testament, a national confession for the people of Israel. Then he, that is Hezekiah, said, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourself now, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness. Notice that word, that's, that relates to katharizo. This is the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken Him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. So there is His national confession. Again, there's confession under Ezra because of the intermarriage of the people with the Canaanites when uh, the, peop- the, the first uh, wave of, of Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity. They read the word publicly and they had a response to the word. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. See, there's a little emotion there. He's appalled at their sin. That's not what qualifies the confession, though. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is to this day. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, Men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. National confession. Again, in, in uh, Nehemiah, there's national confession. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. Let's just go on jo- uh, Job 7.20. Job said, Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a burden to myself? Though I am, though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me, sins of the tongue. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am a sinner. So in these passages we see the acknowledgement of sin. Psalm 32.5. Notice the parallelism here. David says, I acknowledged my sin to thee. That's confession. We admit or acknowledge sin. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Psalm 38.1, we see the uh, emotional consequences, the horror of the divine discipline. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath. 
Chasten me not in thy burning anger, for thine arrows have sunk deep into me, and thy hand is pressed down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh. He's extremely depressed. There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There's no health in my bones. It's affecting his physical health. There's no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. So he has to confess. Psalm 41.4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. I, uh, Psalm 51.2, David prays, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. This is his confession about his sin with Bathsheba. And he says again, Against thee, thee only, I have sinned. Isaiah 59.12, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. And then in verse 13, Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in, and uttering from the heart lying words. So here, Isaiah is confessing the national sin of rejection of God. He goes on to say in verse 14, Injustice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice in the land. The people were not confessing. Isaiah did, but the people didn't. Daniel confesses in Daniel 9.20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, he confessed before he prayed. Luke 5.8, Simon Peter Saw that when he saw, understood his sin, he said, uh, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 15, 18 and 19, in the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal comes back and confesses his sin to his father and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father had, was already forgiving him. Luke 15:20, when he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's what the father does with us when we confess our sins. He doesn't say, well, you did it for the 15,000th time. He runs and embraces us. We are completely restored to fellowship and the past is the past. There is no place for guilt over past failures. John 13:6 in the uh, upper room in the upper room before the um, uh, Passover meal the night before Jesus went to the cross. He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, and, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. It's the principle of confession. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And the interesting thing here is the word meros, translated part here, is a technical term in Greek literature for inheritance. Future rewards. What Jesus is saying is if you don't confess your sins, you're going to be living your life in carnality producing dead works, wood, hay, and stubble. There will be no rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and there's going to be no future possession in the kingdom. Let's go on. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 is a passage that deals with the sin in the congregation at the Corinthian church. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? See, that's going back to that Exodus passage. You can't have any leaven in the church because that's going to neutralize your, your, the congregation. 
So he says, clean out the old leaven. That's a picture of salvation. It's katharizo again. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. That's positional truth. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sons of light, but we don't always walk in the light. Sometimes we walk in darkness, and that's what the Corinthians were doing. He says, you are in fact unleavened. You're carnal, but you have to clean out the leaven, and that's a picture of confession of sin. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.28, in the a passage dealing with the Lord's table, he says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We need to confess our sins, make sure we're in fellowship, partaking in the Lord's table in a worthy manner at the, at the um, Lord's table. And if not, there's discipline for this reason. Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly... We should not be judged. And the point there is self-judgment in confession of sin. And then James 4, 8 again. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the point. Even in the New Testament, there are other passages that emphasize cleansing from post-salvation sin. Those other passages don't mention the word homologeo or confession per se, but they use the word cleansing and they emphasize the importance of cleansing prior to taking in the Word of God. I could go to other passages. There's at least three others that I've thought of, even while I've gone through here, to emphasize this. For example, 1 Peter 1 and 2. James 1, 17 and 18 indicate by use of the, the Greek construction there that we have to deal with sin before we can take in the Word. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm just beating this to death, but... There are, beyond this congregation, and folks who listen to tapes from this congregation, there are, there's a lot of debate over this whole issue. And there are people who teach that confession isn't necessary. It's not legalistic. It's not works. It never has been. It is a simple procedure that God's given us so that we can deal with sin after salvation. It does affect our relationship with God in the same way that when your children disobey you, it affects your relationship with your children. There needs to be something to handle that. And when your children disobey you, they're not kicked out of the family. They don't lose their family status. Neither do we as believers. But it does hinder our relationship with God. It, it quenches the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit so that we need to be restored to fellowship. Here's the picture. The left is our position in Christ. The right circle represents our day-to-day experience when we're walking by the Spirit. Outside of the circle of light, walking in the light, we have the sin nature, walking in darkness, walking in sin nature control. When we sin, we are out of fellowship, walking in darkness. But when we confess our sins through 1 John 1, 9, we're back in fellowship. But people say, well, pastor, sometimes I'm already thinking about the next sin. Fine. You're just back out of fellowship. Some people are just going through it. They're bouncing in and out like this. I remember there have been times in my life when when things weren't going well and I was extremely worried about situations and events and you just wake up in the middle of the night worried, worried, consumed with worry and you say, you claim a few promises and, and, and you settle down for about half a second and then you worry and worry and you confess your sin. And that's the way it is sometimes. That's reality. But that's how we grow is in that process because eventually we keep repeating the promises 
and they begin to drive, the Holy Spirit drives them home in our soul, and eventually we begin to relax. It may not happen in two seconds. It may take half a day. Some situations may be very extreme, but we don't have to worry about the fact that I'm just do it over and over and over again because God in His omniscience understands that and He knows that we are, are, are sinners. And it is typical, it's characteristic of immature Christians to be frequently in and out of fellowship. You're out of fellowship more than you're in fellowship. And as soon as you get in fellowship, you're back out again. That's pretty much standard operating procedure for an immature young believer. But the point is that as long as we're out of fellowship, we're not going to grow. So you keep short accounts, you confess your sins to God, and then the Holy Spirit is the one who works in us to produce growth over time based on His Word. It's all grace. See, this frees us up from the guilt of failure. It's like a football coach. There's no successful sports coach who spends all his time pointing out the failures of the team or the individual. That's not how you advance. That's not how you become victorious. You may have to work on some failures, but if all you do is tell that tight end that he just keeps dropping the ball, he keeps dropping the ball, he keeps dropping the ball, he keeps fumbling, uh, he's not going to get anywhere. He's going to spend all his time focusing on his failures and not on the goal and going forward. Grace means focus on the future. The sins are paid for. God gives us a recovery procedure. So don't focus on past failures. Learn from them. Apply the word. Go forward because it's only when we reach spiritual maturity that we're really going to see the fruits of the Spirit in our lives and that's when we begin to glorify God to the maximum with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that we have such... You've given us such grace solutions to our problems. That you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. That he paid the penalty for every sin we'll ever commit. And therefore, we don't have to pay that penalty in addition. We don't have to impress you with our remorse, impress you with how sorry we are, impress you with our sincerity. You've simply given us a procedure to admit our, our sins and so that we can recover fellowship so that we can go forward. It's not a license so that we can get away with it, but it is a grace procedure so that we can get past it. And we need to focus on that. What a tremendous resource you've given us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that sure and certain right now. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right now, right where you sit, you can make your eternal destiny certain. All you have to do is accept the free gift of eternal life presented by Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. All we have to do is accept it by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that for those who are not saved, that they would accept the free gift of salvation. And for those who are believers, that they would be challenged this morning by the truth of your word, by the grace of your forgiveness to understand the procedures of 1 John 1.9. We just thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.